Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode to episode number 606, where we began breaking down the crime scene in the home where Jim Melgar was murdered. In this week's episode, we only covered the parts of the house that weren't, air quotes, directly related to the crime scene, meaning we left out the master suite. We're making that an episode all of its own, and that episode will drop this Sunday. Just to give you guys a heads up, we are recording this super early. You guys did give us a bunch of questions. Mike said he's got a lot to work with here. Uh, we're recording Tuesday because I am flying out today to head down to Texas to go to Ed's release. So when you guys are hearing this episode, Ed should already be at home. And hopefully today I will be enjoying a nice barbecue where Ed will be cooking for us. But since we need to get moving, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get started, Mike. All right, let's do this. All right, our first question is from Locker. Have we verified that the Melgars did not have a keypad garage opener anywhere in their house? They did not. They only had the buttons in the cars and the buttons next to the doors on the inside of the garage. All right, this next one's from Allison. She's got four separate questions. First, why is it so hard to believe that home invasions happen while people are at home and awake? Well, it's really not. I mean, that's the, and I think we covered that a little bit in the episode uh, where we played the news clip or uh, read from the news article about other ones. But I mean, it, it happens all the time. It happens every day. I think that that was, it's a, it's a silly theory, I think, to, or a concept to think that this could never happen because they were home. It happens every day. All right. Her second question is, do we know where the dogs were when Jim went to let them in? Were they at the door where the burglars may have come through? Could that be why they were making so much noise? Uh, yeah, it's definitely possible. So the Melgars, if you look at the crime scene photos on our website, the back door came into like a breakfast nook type area. And uh, that area opened up into the kitchen and they had like what looked like a table on its side, like a tabletop to barricade the dogs from getting into the kitchen. And then it also opened up into the living room. And in that space, they had several boxes stacked up to keep the dogs in there. So they had a little, it was actually like a cat door, but the dogs were small. They were chihuahuas and Pomeranians. So they would be in the fence backyard and they could come into the, that breakfast nook area and they were barricaded there. And yeah, that could be why they were barking at one o'clock in the morning because yeah, that's the door that Jim went to is the door where they were at. He was, the intention was from what Sandy says is he was going to then let them in and go lock them into the office because that's where they would keep them at night. Now, this wasn't typical for their dogs in general, uh, but they unexpectedly had puppies. So their older dogs didn't have that problem uh, as far as messing on the floor and stuff, but they had puppies in the house. And that's why they would keep them in the, to keep them barricaded there. And then also to keep them locked into the, the office at night because they were still having accidents. Okay. Your third question is, do we have the medical examiner's report yet? Was there anything found in Jim's nails or maybe a closed hand that could help us? We do have the medical examiner's report, uh, and we're going to get into all of that in a future episode. I'm a little out of whack because we had to record stuff ahead of time before because of the trip. So I think in two weeks, we're going to go over the Emmys report, but we will go over that in detail. And her last question is, when the tub was emptied, were there any hairs or other things found in the drain or tub after the knife was found there? This will probably be an answer to a lot of your questions. 
we are going to do a full episode on the forensic evidence. Uh, so, and for those of you that have gone on the website and have read through Carpenter's report, there's more reports to read through besides just his, but he mentioned some of the stuff where they took swabs or collected fingerprints. And I just haven't been hitting on those things yet because we're going to go back with some of the photographs and that stuff and do an episode strictly on all of the forensics from the crime scene. All right, Matt says the back door may be locked, but I can tell you exactly how someone can come through it. Annoyingly, there are no close-up picks of the dog door, so I can't tell if it's locked, but all you need is a long stick and you can reach through and push the deadlock open. I know this is not only possible, but easy and even a method burglars use. It's unusual for them to lock the door behind them, but what if Jim came down after they had gained entry, found the back door open, and quickly locked it himself? That's possible, and yeah, so we kind of ruled out the dog door early because it's a small dog door. It's not, you know, because the original thought was a burglar could just crawl through it. Uh, but but this is like we said is a very small one. But this was an interesting point because it, it's plenty big enough to get your arm through. And keep in mind, and you'll see this if you look at the crime scene photos, the entire door was glass, so you could see, especially if you had two people. So you could have one person laying down on the ground with you know a broom handle or a long stick, stick their arm through, and then reach up with a stick to hit the the latch on the deadbolt, and someone else looking through the big glass window and kind of guiding them to it. So. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, I think there are some other possibilities about how that might have happened or that how someone may have tried to force the door. And we'll probably get into it later, but I guess I'll, I'll address it now because we're, we're on this topic. Uh, when you look at the crime scene photos of the door, you heard me obviously in the episode uh, very frustrated by the fact that Carpenter didn't take any photos of the open door. It didn't take any photos of the outside of the door. Uh, it's, it's a little suspicious. And I hate to use that word with, with an officer, but people on the on, on the Facebook page have said, well, there must have been no signs of forced entry, so we didn't bother. Well, there was absolutely no signs of forced entry in the front door. And we have pictures from the outside, pictures from the inside, pictures of it open, pictures from the end, pictures of the jam. We have all that. And then the back door, where Sandy says Jim had went to let the dogs in, when you look at the crime scene photos, you see... That door looks jacked up. His report says there was no signs of forced entry. But as I mentioned in the episode, and to kind of explain a little further, there was a big gap between the door and the jam. And when you look at, and I think someone in another post had said that they talked to a locksmith and said, well, some of those marks are, you know, telltale marks of somebody trying to close the door when uh, the deadbolt was shut, just sticking out. And that's true. You can see that. Imagine if that deadbolt striker was out. Somebody shut the door, it bangs on the the trim, leaves a mark. But when you look closer, there's a lot more going on there. Below the deadbolt and all around the the doorknob, there's all sorts of tool marks on the on the jam and even on the door. To me, again, like I said in the episode, it looks like someone could have tried to wedge that space open. And then one of the reasons you might try to do that, and there and there are specialized tools to do this, which this locksmith had mentioned in this post on the fan page, but but they'll spread the spread that space larger so that they can fit a tool in to get to the knob on the deadbolt. Now, if you look closer at that photo, you'll see a couple of things. One, between the knob and the deadbolt in the space, in that quarter inch or so space between the door and the jam, you'll see there's it looks like a white square between them. Well, what that is, if you zoom in and look, there's black foam weather stripping that's been put on the jam all the way down. And right where all these tool marks are, that white square is a place where the weather stripping has been torn away, either ripped off or whatever. There's just an, there's a gap there. Then look on the door, the door itself, between that white space and the deadbolt, and you'll see very strange scratch marks on the door that that go in a direct angle from that spot where the weather stripping is. And then at an angle upward toward the, the latch or the knob for the deadbolt. One possibility that I've kicked around is the idea that someone, and I've said a a coat hanger, but there are, again, there are specialized tools for this is that if somebody used a couple of screwdrivers or pry bar to spread that gap, which is much easier to do than you think uh, those, you know, it's all soft wood. You're talking about pine. Usually it'll bend. And then you reach a tool, maybe like a U-shaped tool, through that space and then use that to to flip around and flip the deadbolt uh, knob to open the deadbolt the rest of the way. I don't know if that's what happened, but those scratch marks are odd. 
the big gap in the door is odd and the missing weather stripping is odd. Uh, it just doesn't make sense why there would be all of these tool marks uh, below the deadbolt and above the, the doorknob itself. So uh, one thing to think about doesn't mean they were successful, but it could have been an attempt uh, by someone to try to get that door open. And while we're on the topic of that back door, listener Tara wanted to know if any of the family members noticed any signs of fourth century on the back of that door. Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't I haven't heard any of them saying anything there, but all of them. Well, I shouldn't say all of them. I've spoken with uh, Liz directly, their daughter, and I know she said that door did not usually look that way, that it looked like there was damage to the door. Uh, and I believe I don't want to misquote her, but I believe that she also said that she brought this up to Detective Curazal and told him this door, there's something wrong. This door wasn't usually like this. And she was ignored. Okay, I'm looking at a picture of the, quote, breakfast nook from the crime scene photos. It's also up on the fan page, if anybody wants to take a look here while Bob's explaining this. And along with the photo was this question from Crystal. Is that a duffel bag on the floor next to the chair? And do we know if there was anything in it? That's a really good question, and it's exactly, and you'll see, I'm sure, more and more of this through this episode, and most certainly if you go on the, the fan page on Facebook. The reason we put up these crime scene photos is because it puts more eyes on the crime scene and in each individual room and in every single picture. So when I was looking at those photos, I'm focused on the door. And this was a great catch because I, I did see that post. And yeah, there's a big black duffel bag sitting right next to the back door. Um, I don't know. I haven't had a chance to talk to Liz or anybody else about what was in the duffel bag. And of course, it wasn't mentioned in Maurice's report that there was a duffel bag there. That almost looks to me, though, like it might be a soft-sided dog carrier. Right. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. So th that may be what that is. You know, because also in that room, there's there's like a pillow somebody had asked about, which I'm sure is for the dogs to lay down on. Um, so I don't know. It, it definitely looks like a duffel bag, but it also looks like I've seen these before with these smaller dogs where they're they're actually dog carriers. Yeah, it looks like a solid top on there. Right. Yeah. Chad says, is there any significance to the blemish on the wall in the living room next to where the Xbox was? So a few people brought that up and some people refer to it as a blemish, some as a hole. And what they're talking about uh, near where the TV is, I think, but or by the fireplace, there's uh, it looks like a hole in the wall. I think that's the one he's talking about. I think that is for a chuck key to turn the gas line on for the gas fireplace. Um, somebody else that lives in the same area had said they have the same thing on their wall. And also, uh, listener Don McElhaney, uh, who's a really good researcher, uh, went and looked at on Zillow at the uh, an old listing for the house that was years after this in the same holes in the wall there. So I don't think it's a hole. I think it's probably where you put a metal key in to turn on the fireplace. Gotcha. This next one's from Jenna. Anyone think a break-in could have happened while they were out to dinner and Jim found the intruder in the house when he let the dogs in? That could explain the back door being locked, but also possibly showing signs of a break-in, the backpack in the garage during a quick escape, and the weapon coming from inside the house. Maybe they were just trying to rob an empty house and got desperate when they were caught. What do you think, Bob? I think that's possible, and, and as a matter, you and I, when we first started looking at the case, we thought it looks more to me like someone was already in the house, mm -hmm. um, or that's a possibility or a hypothesis. But the more I've, I, I think about it, that would mean that that person or persons, if it happened, that they would have been waiting, lying in wait in the house for hours. At least, I mean, We don't know if it was really two hours because nobody's looking at a, a watch. It could have been an hour, uh, hour and a half, who knows. But it's a long time for them to just sit and wait. You know, you think once they got into the tub, you know, that would be a good time. If you're just trying to escape, to go ahead and escape. It's not entirely out of the question. You know, I mean, if you're, especially if you're talking about young people, which we right. have to consider. And multiple people. Exactly. You know, where people are just, they're hunkering down trying to figure out when's the best time to go. They go to make their escape out the back door. And that's when the dogs bark. Jim comes out. But again, I just, it just, it, I can't in my mind piece together a scenario that really seems to make sense for me if that happened because I mean why not just run out if you're already to the back door when he comes out you know why not just open the door and leave I mean maybe the barking dogs would scare them and they'd come back uh, I, I don't know so it's a possibility but it would be a, it would be a strange situation to me for them to be sitting in the house for you know at least an hour or more while they're back in the in the tub You'd think that if they just were trying to make an escape that they would, because remember, there's, there's a front door too, which is even further away from the bedroom for them to just to get the hell out of there. 
So it's, it's something certainly to consider in this hypothesis that I think should stay on the table. But I just I'm having a hard time connecting the dots for myself to figure out how that exactly would play out. Okay, Karina says regarding the backpack, isn't it odd that it was left in the garage? Why would a burglar leave it? Was there anything else in the backpack? There was other stuff in the backpack. We'll get into it in the episode about forensics. I guess I'll tell you now. There was jewelry in the backpack also. So there was the Xbox, an Xbox game, and jewelry in the backpack. Now, as far as why it was left there, it's hard to say. Again, it's it was a little tricky to piece together that scenario. But if we go back to what I said in the episode, which listener, I believe it was Sheila at our Houston fan meetup. Uh, and I apologize if I got your name wrong. I met a lot of people that weekend. But the, the idea that because the wrong door was open, all the different theories and people I, ideas that people have about maybe the garage door didn't get shut all the way or somebody, you know, put their foot over the, the laser and got it to, to pop back up the, you know, the safety mechanism. But the problem with that is, as Sandy said repeatedly in her interview, it doesn't make sense for that door to be open. They never, ever used that door. And again, if she's guilty and she's trying, she's, she's not doing herself any favors because all she would have had to say is, yeah, we walked in through that garage door and maybe it got left open. But she said, no, we always shut the garage door. I don't know, though, because Jim did go back out to the car, but they drove the car that's parked in the garage on the left. And she said they only use the garage door on the left. They never use the one on the right. As far as why was the backpack left there? In my opinion, if this was an intruder, it's a good indication that something went wrong here. Something didn't go according to plan. My gut feeling right now is this was a getaway driver situation where the plan was maybe to stack stuff up in the garage and then very quickly have somebody pull in the driveway, jump in the car and go. Maybe it could have been a possibility, something like that. And it just, you know, when, when someone got murdered, which wasn't the intention, everybody's freaking out and nobody's thinking clearly and it got it gets left. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And her second question is, are we definitely certain that the garage door wasn't left open? Also, this could have been an entry point too, couldn't it? Yeah, if it was left open, it certainly could have been an entry point. But, you know, like I, like we've said a few times now, that it just... I don't believe that it was left open by the Melgars. It would be much easier to explain if that was the case, but it just, I don't think Sandy would, in any case, innocent or guilty, I don't think Sandy would lie or be mistaken about the fact that they never opened the right-hand garage door. If she's, if she's innocent, then she certainly would, she certainly wouldn't intentionally say that backwards if she's the one that opened the door. And if she's guilty, then like I said earlier, they would much, it would be much easier on her to say that they left that door open. Cormac has two questions. First, the Dateline NBC episode made reference to Sandra telling the doctor she wasn't having seizures at her doctor's checkups, but the previous podcast episodes have implied she was self-managing her illness and maybe wasn't having these regular checkups. Do we know anything about her checkup history and whether she had regularly told the doctor she wasn't having seizures, or were these checkups a long time ago? The checkups that she had had uh, in recent years, even before the, the murders, were that, that everything was managed. She wasn't reporting to the doctor that she was having any seizures and that the medications were managing it. Now, what I've been told by the family is that there were occasional seizures, but apparently if you go to the doctor and tell them that you're having seizures, you lose your driver's license for a period of time. So they would try to manage them without dealing with the doctor. And, and it did sound like they were pretty much managed, but they did happen. Okay, next she says, were there any other points made in that Dateline episode that stood out as glaring factual errors or misrepresentations? Gosh, off the top of my head, I mean, Colleen Barnett 
kind of told the same story on Dateline that she did on the podcast. And and you guys have heard some of that. I, I take issue with some of the points that she was making. And I think that there were some factual errors there. No, I don't think there was anything that I could think of. The big one, obviously, is Barnett showing how to tie your wrist up when her wrists weren't tied up. I'm, I'm <laughs> Where my brain's going right now is yesterday on uh, Discovery ID, there's a show called um, Deadly Women. Yeah, I saw this on the fan page. Yeah, if you, if you looked on Twitter, you would have seen how pissed I was. Uh, and so was Liz and a lot of our listeners. It was horrible. Uh, I was told that, you know, in yesterday's premiere episode of season 12 of Deadly Women, they covered the the Melgar case. And I will tell you that it was the most gross, misrepresented, unresearched, fabricated pile of bullshit I've ever seen on TV. I mean, it, keep in mind, here just as a little example. And if you can, you can watch it. If you have cable that includes Discovery ID, you can go to their app or their website uh, and watch it and see what you think. But keep in mind, they did a lot of dramatizations of interactions with, with Jim and their daughter, Liz with Jim and Sandy with Sandy and Liz, except for those people didn't interview Liz or Sandy. And of course, Jim is deceased. So it's literally completely fabricated and made up in the show. They showed Sandy in the closet when Herman, first of all, they showed a two story house, which is not a one story house. And when he runs up to the closet, he opens the door and Sandy sitting there with her wrist tied and they might've been behind her back there. I don't remember, but she's just sitting there like, Oh, please help me. Please help me. Not completely bound with her arms behind her back, unable to move. Like was the fact, the fact that she had soiled herself. They didn't even touch on the fact that there was a door. As a matter of fact, they showed Herman just walking in and in the dramatization, just opening the door. No mention of the chair against the door. Uh, they made a statement what, oh, a couple of the ones that I caught were uh, they try to paint this picture that this was a horrible, troubled marriage. And they said that Sandy had converted to Jim's religion uh, years ago and was bitter about it, which, of course, we know it was complete BS that the two of them, after Liz was born, joined the Jehovah's Witness Church together and were baptized together. It wasn't her j- converting to Jim's religion. It's just that's just a complete lie. Uh, and and, the, and they talked about you know, how Colleen Barnett on the show had said that she heard from someone who heard from someone who heard from someone that maybe the Melgars were in counseling. Well, they put that out as fact in the ID discovery in the, the deadly women episode that they were in marriage. You know, they, they literally said marriage counseling revealed that there was all these problems in their marriage and Sandy wanted out except for it's a lie. It's bullshit. No one has ever said that the prosecution was never able to find a witness to say anything along those lines. No one found anything. Every single character witness all said the exact same thing. They've got a great marriage. They're very happy. They're very fun. They laugh a lot. They're they're kind of a goofy, fun couple is what everyone said. And so um, I know that's not what they were asking. They're asking about the Dateline episode, but I'm just still fuming over this uh, Deadly Women episode. It's just it's just such irresponsible mm-hmm. production to do that. And then it makes you wonder all the because this is their 12th season. Like how many people have they done this to? And and I would highly I, I would ask that. I'm not gonna ask that. I'm just gonna let you know that Discovery ID's Twitter handle is at Discovery ID and uh you can go to at Deadly Women TV if you'd like to mention to them what you think about the show because it was horrible. I wanted to throw my TV through the window. I've never seen such irresponsible reporting the way they put that together. And of course, they had their little disclaimer at the beginning that says some facts have been changed, and that's probably the legal. Oh, yeah, that's a legal loophole for them. Yeah. So, so they can do whatever they want with yeah. the material. What they're saying is we're going to completely fabricate and make up a story because it sounds more interesting. All right. Joanna says, if this was a random burglar looking for a random house to break into, why the overkill on Jim while leaving the wife completely unharmed? It seems to me it's Jim they were after and not Sandra for some reason. And before you answer, Bob, along those same lines, listener Marnix says, a burglar doesn't stab their victim 50 plus times, like overkill. What do you think? The thing is, oh, speaking of what, and I keep hammering back to it, but you can tell I'm a little pissed. Also, in the uh, Deadly Women episode, the woman, whoever this woman is that's on the show, said it was really revealing when we figured out that it was their 32nd wedding anniversary and Jamie had 32 stab wounds. Oh, my gosh. Bum, bum, bum. First of all, that's stupid. 
<laughs> Second of all, he didn't have 32 stab wounds, you idiot. It was, it was so let's, bad. Let's calm down, Bob. So bad. It was so f- bad. Anyway, to answer this question, I think that a lot of people are getting this idea that this was overkill, right? That there was, you know, there was 50 stab wounds or 50 injuries. because There weren't 50 stab wounds. There were 50 injuries. Like, why would someone do this? But it's completely misleading. And I'm going to I'm going to guess from memory right now. So these numbers may be off a little bit. When we do the ME report, we're going to get into it in detail. But first of all, he didn't have 51 stab wounds. He didn't have 32 stab wounds. Idiot from Discovery ID. And he had, I think it was 14 or 17 stab wounds and some other cuts and then some blunt force wounds. And again, that sounds like overkill, but there's a couple of things you have to consider. Number one, I can tell you, I believe there were six actual stab wounds in Jamie's torso. Yeah, there was like three on the chest and three in the abdomen. There was also a cut on his neck. That's it. The rest of all these wounds are on his arms and hands. So he's got slices and cuts and stabs on his forearms and wrists and hands and fingers. And they're calling those stab wounds. But that's not someone sitting there, you know, 50 times hammering away at his chest when he's already dead. It's him fighting. He's fighting and he's blocking. And the other thing is that I think some people, not saying these people, but a lot of people think that that people die like they do on TV. That if I come up to you and I stab you, you go, and you drop dead. And that's not the case at all. None of these stab wounds were anything, you know, you'll die pretty quickly if someone, say, stabs and, and severs your aorta or your carotid artery. You'll bleed out in, in a matter of, of seconds, but it's still a little bit of time. He died from multiple injuries, and, and a few of the injuries punctured his lungs, which causes lungs to fill with fluid and, and, and kill him. There were some other injuries, too, that resulted in his death. Point being, it would have been several minutes before Jim passed away when this attack happened. Several. None of these were devastating enough wounds to even take him down quickly. So what you're picturing is someone sitting over a dead body with somebody on the floor repeatedly stabbing them over and over and over again. That's not what this was. It was them trying to stab him, him blocking it, hitting his hand. They connect on his chest, but it's not deep, which you know the theory was, oh, it must be a woman because they're shallow wounds, as I think is what Barnett said. Well, also, look at his arms. He's blocking. as They're not getting the opportunity to get full plunges into him because he's blocking them with his hands and his forearms and his wrists. So that's all, that's all I can say about that right now because I don't have the, uh, the Emmys report completely broken down yet, which we're going to get into. But in my opinion, I've seen Overkill, and I've even seen Thrill Kill. Remember season three, Kiao Go, that was just stabbed repeatedly over and over and over again like 20 times. This was not that. This was a fight to the death, literally. And most of Jim's injuries are defense. He has a lot more defensive wounds than he has actual injuries that connected. And it's a little morbid, but it just occurred to me that he was drinking alcohol. Right. So, I mean, you've got alcohol plus adrenaline. Mm -hmm. He's probably going to be able to take more punishment than somebody who wasn't under the influence. Yeah. And continue fighting. And also, you know, if we're looking at a theory, we talked a little bit about that something might have triggered him to start fighting back if he was compliant to begin with. You know, if that thing was Sandy, because regardless of what they said on that stupid show on Discovery ID, Jim loved his wife and she loved him. And if he knows or feels she's in danger, that that takes adrenaline to a whole new level uh, and makes that fight an even an even tougher battle. So I, I think you're exactly right. There's a lot of factors here that we need to consider. All right. Thomas has two questions. First, were there any fingerprints taken at the scene from the Xbox? That's. And hopefully it's not the same answer to the rest of your questions or rest of his questions. Uh, we're going to get into all of that. Uh, and I and I honestly don't know off the top of my head because uh, I've, I've just kind of filed them away. I haven't I haven't studied and memorized the forensic reports. But in the forensic episode, we'll get into that. And then his other question you might not have the answer for, but I'm going to ask anyway. Was the Xbox or entertainment system visible from any of the windows? Boy, that's a good question. It would be for sure. But I don't. Gosh, I'll have to go back to the crime scene photos and see if I don't know if blinds were pulled uh, or anything like that. It was dark in the living room. I I think Mike and I finally figured out that um, and I'm I'm just kind of veering off topic, sort of. We we talked about like uh, Gerson thought there was a lamp on somewhere. Right. And we said we could see a light coming from the kitchen, but we couldn't see where it was from. Uh, After really we looked at it, I think that we, we both agree that the light coming from the kitchen 
was the nightlight in the uh, the refrigerator where the water is and stuff uh, was the only light on in the front of the house. So it would have been it would have been pretty dark. But if someone looked earlier when it was light out or just you know walking by, sometime could have certainly seen that there was a TV right there. But again, that would be dependent upon there not being you know blinds or curtains pulled. All right, Robin says, I'm wondering what the results were from the case you read from the newspaper. Was anyone arrested? Also, was that family able to give a description? Yeah, so let me, let me read you the rest of the article. So you guys remember from the last episode that uh, there the, was at 1 a.m., it was a nice neighborhood, and someone forced their way into the house at 1 o'clock in the morning, forced the man into the house, tied up the family, and then asked him to open a safe, and they took small items. Okay, so that's where we kind of left off. Here is the rest of that article from the Houston Chronicle article. The man was able to untie himself and call police. He told investigators he saw at least one of the suspects leaving in a black BMW that was driven by a woman. The others left in what appears to be a black Chevy Equinox. Police spotted the black BMW on the southbound lanes of the North Freeway and pulled the driver over. Siniad Vanessa Gonzalez, 21, was arrested and charged with aggravated robbery in the home invasion. Police did not find anyone else in the car. Police found some of the items taken in the robbery in the car. Police believe the suspects targeted the man because he owns a limousine service. They had been following him for at least a day prior to the attack and knew where he lived. Investigators believe the four men were outside waiting for him and that Gonzalez was following him in the BMW. The other suspects were described as being in their late 20s to early 30s, one of them is five foot eight inches tall, another is five foot six inches tall, and a third is five foot three inches tall. They spoke Spanish with what appeared to be a Colombian accent. Police released composite sketches of the men. Another man was involved in the attack, but no description of him was available. Anyone with information about this case or suspects' identities is urged to contact the HBD robbery division. So some interesting points here. Number one, in this home invasion, there were at least four, maybe five people inside. There was a female getaway driver uh, in the BMW. And I believe, I, I'm not familiar with the name Siniad, but the middle name is Vanessa. I believe they caught the woman in the BMW who had items in her car, but nobody else. So all of the men there are still at large. They didn't catch them. And there's not much information here. I do want to get further into that. Um, and we were definitely going to be investigating this this much further. But it's just in, some interesting things to think about. This means that four out of five or five out of six or however many there were, people in this group got away and were still at large. Okay. And they also learned what didn't work. How did they get caught? If we're talking about criminal behavior analysis here, right? How did they get caught? They got caught because their car was in the driveway and the, the people were able to give a description. So let's say the people that are left decided to do it again. What did they learn? Don't park the car on the driveway. So now I'm not saying these two cases are directly related, but boy, it sure is a very similar MO if this was a home invasion to come into the house and tie everybody up, rob things, even the safe. Jim was found in the closet next to his safe. There's bloody fingerprints on the safe in the closet. So it's an extremely similar MO. The target was an entrepreneur. Right, and the, exactly, yeah. Target was an entrepreneur. There's just a lot of similarities there. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is in her in her interview, uh, Sandra said that she thinks they may have been followed. Right. So, I mean, it, you know, they those people tailed their their last victims. So yeah, there's a lot there, and that's a yeah good point. They said from CVS they felt like they were being followed by someone. Uh, there was multiple cars, two cars here, and so it, I think that we cannot rule out that this, these were the same people and just because the, the mo's weren't exactly the same they're pretty damn close and the things that are different are the things that went wrong in the previous home invasion also keep in mind that uh, they were also didn't get away with it because the man escaped from his bindings so they didn't tie him obviously as tightly as they thought they had Gail says, was there a backyard? I haven't seen or heard reference of one so far apart from Herman going round to the back door. And is there any photos of the yard at all which could show footprints in mud or grass, or was it a concrete yard? If it's a possible theory, the perpetrators came in through the back door as Jim opened it, letting the dogs in. This could provide crucial evidence. I see a photo in the files of the back gate fence. 
There was also mud on there, which could have footprints. What do you think, Bob? So, yes, there was a backyard. They had a nice fenced backyard with like a pergola. And it was. What's a pergola? It's, or a, I don't know, it's a gazebo. It was an area out behind the back door. Imagine four pillars with this kind of wood slats over it, is the best way I could describe it. Uh, but they, they did have the backyard. There was the fence, was on the left side of the house. And nope, no photos of the backyard. Thanks a lot, Maurice. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Danny says, doesn't the fact that the dog poop was contained to the study or office reasonably suggest that the dogs had been locked in the study for at least some significant portion of time? How does this gel with the family finding them loose in the living area? I don't think that's necessarily true. Dogs are creatures of habit. So if you notice in those pictures, there's puppy chucks in there. Uh, so that's where at night they go. And when they go to the bathroom in the house, they're training them to go on those puppy chucks in that room. So even though the dogs were loose in the house and could wander throughout the house, uh, likely they still went to that place to go to the bathroom. I know that, that my German Shepherds have particular places. Thank God it's not inside. It's outside in the yard. Um, but I can find Ruger's landmines in the same area every single day. Her next question is, do we have any idea of how long Sandy had been awake for before she heard her in-laws calling out upon their arrival? I don't think she has a real good idea of how long she'd been awake for. You know, she's in a completely dark room. She was in and out of consciousness and was confused about what was going on, and she was in pain, so she just, I don't know. She's never, she, and of course, she didn't have a clock, so I don't think she knows. You know, in that situation, five minutes could feel like five hours and vice versa. Next, she says, there's a pile of shredded paper in the garage right in the spot where someone was walking in between the laundry and the open garage door would have been passed over. Doesn't it seem more likely that the shredded paper found throughout the house came from someone tracking it in from the garage rather than from the dogs, given that the shredded paper in the office was contained within the shredder bin and not lying around loose? That's a very distinct possibility, and I hadn't really thought of that, but yeah, it just it's just odd to me. The detectives made a big deal about it, but definitely, I think, for the wrong reasons. They made a big deal about it because they were trying to show some indication that Sandy was cleaning up after the crime scene, and that doesn't make much sense to me. It's just it's not enough. There's just little bits of it throughout the house. So that's possible, but it is spread out in a lot of locations. But the other issue I have is that the vacuum cleaner was full of paper shreds. And that's why I say I think that it came from the day before, because it looks like somebody already tried to start cleaning it up. And obviously, if there were intruders and they tracked it in, then it wouldn't be in the vacuum yet. All right. Richard says, did they test the vacuum for fingerprints or DNA? It just occurred to me that if the paper was tracked from the garage, the intruders might have tried using the vacuum to clean it up. And again, we'll have to we'll get into that when we get into the forensics episode. And and, and I'm going to you may have something about this, but it just popped my mind. I don't want to forget about it. Uh, there's something that is left out of 606 this past episode and the episode that's coming this Sunday in two days, 607. And you'll see it in the crime scene photos there. It has nothing related to anything you were just asking me. Uh, I just don't want to forget it. There is a pillow. It, like a couch pillow in the at the end of the hallway, right next to the bedroom door. Super weird. It's just like right before you turn left to go into the bedroom, right there against the wall, is a couch pillow just sitting there completely out of place. And it, it kind of got missed because, you know, we had the episode about the house and then the episode about the master suite. And when I did the one about the house, I thought, well, I'll talk about the pillow when we do the master suite. And then we were already recorded uh, this Sunday's episode about the master suite, and of course that's not in the pictures, uh, or it is a little bit uh, when you see out the out the door. But in any case, I just missed mentioning it. I've got it all over my notes. Uh, but go to the crime scene photos and look at that and tell me what you think. Because, and I know some people said they thought they had some theories about it, but just know that's not something that's going to be covered Sunday. It should have been. It was my mistake. I should have talked about it probably in both. Ended up being in neither. Uh, but check out that pillow at the end of the hallway. It's really odd. And has two questions. Has anyone explored the idea of the mysterious photographer who actually could have been the murderer slipping out? Not sure how you'd begin to investigate that, but it feels odd. No, I don't think it's the anybody slipping out. I mean, that would be, especially with the open garage door and everything, that, that would mean that after this all happened, that someone sat in the house for 15 hours 
waiting until there was an audience before they left. I just that doesn't add up to me. I, it very well could be a complete red herring. I'm a little baffled by it, but but no, I, I definitely don't think anybody was still sticking around the house. If there were intruders, I certainly don't think they would stick around for that long. Next, she says the fact that Sandy soiled herself really shows to me it wasn't all set up. I mean, even if she did set it all up, would she really take it that far? It adds credibility to her story in an odd way. Yeah, it, it's what level of commitment do you have to staging this? So I guess someone could do that just to help give the image that they had been locked in the closet the whole time. But I, it just seems super odd to me. And, and you add to that, there's so many subtleties here. You know, when we talked about the uh, the Southeast bedroom, Liz's old bedroom. What, what I have seen, especially with this case, I've been studying a lot of other like staged crime scenes and things to look for, and I just don't see it here. In a staged crime scene, usually it's overdone. You know, people will knock lamps on the ground and pull the drawers out and throw shit everywhere that just looks like there's been a huge catastrophe happening in there. But if you break down what came from where, it doesn't make sense. In this crime scene, everything does make sense so far. Uh, you know, all, all just the little subtle things. And then again, if you're staging the scene, it's like she staged it to look like the robbers made mistakes. You know, and, and that's a that's the thing that gets me. And we'll see that more when we get into the closet where Jamie's body is found and, and his body and things like that. But it's just like who maybe it's possible, but to think about not just I want it to look like they stole this, but I want it to look like they were looking for this and they missed it. Or I want it to look like they went through this jewelry box, even there was no valuable jewelry in it, and they dropped something on the floor and and ripped a poster while they were doing it. Now, there, there's just so many little subtleties like that. It just I find it really, really hard to believe that this was all staged. Uh, and there's a lot more that's that's, that's going to drive that point home that has driven it home for me that you'll hear about on Sunday. Nicole says, do you know where Liz's old backpack was usually stored? Could that be a clue to the path the intruder took in the house? Uh, I think probably in her old bedroom, which would be the southeast corner bedroom. But I'm, I'm not 100% positive about that, but I'll ask her. Katie says, did the investigators go to any local pawn shops to see if any of the missing items had been sold? If not, would it be possible to do it now? That's a loaded question that I can't get too deeply into now. because So, so I, I know partially the answer to that. I don't have the full picture yet because I'm still waiting on all of the files to come back from the DA's office. But yeah, we'll have to get into that later. But I'll, I can say this, that there was some investigation into some pawn shops and more so some things being sold online uh, that are very, very disturbing that the police didn't give it more attention than they did. But we'll get into all of that later. Jennifer says, were there any signs that either vehicle, Jim's or Sandra's, had been tampered with? Were the car keys easily accessible? No, and that's one of the things that I originally thought too with the open garage door was, well, maybe they broke into Jim's truck and pushed the button in his truck. From what I'm told, there's certainly nothing in the police report about it. There's nothing, Carpenter's report doesn't even go through the cars at all, which is, again, baffling. It shows you the tunnel vision that he had, not going into the backyard, not looking at the outside of the doors, not looking in the cars at all. That's how the backpack got missed, for Christ's sake. He didn't go out in the garage and even inspect out there. It's very, very clear, and you'll see that more on Sunday, right or wrong. I'm not going to say right or wrong, but it's very, very clear that he had his mind made up from the very beginning that Sandy was the killer and this was staged. And he only looked at things that fit that theory. And we've seen this time and time and time again. The reason Ed Eights has been in prison for 20 years is because the Smith County Sheriff's Department had a theory and they ignored leads that could have led him to the answer back then. There were people they could have interviewed. There were people they could have looked for for scratches and bruises and cuts. Uh, that they could have got DNA from that they never did because they thought they had already figured out. And that's exactly what happened here. Even the Smith County Sheriff's Department in Ed's case at least looked at the damn cars, you know, the car outside, because you have to look at the crime scene as a whole. But there's nothing in the reports just to indicate at all that they looked in the cars, around the cars, dusted the cars for fingerprints, the one outside. And so I don't know. I, I know from talking to Liz, she says as far as she knows, there was no evidence that the cars were broken into. But, you know, she didn't get there till days later, so who knows? Again, thanks a lot, Maurice. Susan says, after listening to the description of the home and seeing the photos, I'm just not convinced I see the, quote, ransacked house. Has anyone asked if this was just a normal state of the house? We, and she's talking about herself, 
have a bedroom we use as storage and it honestly looks very similar, so I'm not seeing the obvious signs of a break-in or staging at all. Can you clarify? Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It doesn't look like a ransacked house, and that's part of what I was talking about earlier, is typically in a staged scene, that's what you see is a ransacked house. There's shit all over the place. In this case, no, from talking to the family, no, it was not kept this way. Uh, as a matter of fact, even the the doors, um, the <laughs> the not t- the plastic food can the Tupperware cabinet. I don't know what to call it other than a Tupperware cabinet, even though I know that's a brand name. But even that and the liquor cabinet, according to Liz, even that was out of character because both her parents would get onto her if she left doors and drawers open. They didn't do that. They didn't leave stuff open like that. Now I could see maybe those two. It's you know they, they get home, they're rushing back, they're gonna have a great night in the jacuzzi tub. They leave it open. Uh, but no, the rest of the stuff, like the the jewelry boxes and the drawers being op- pulled open like that, no. I, from what they say, that, from what Liz says, that is completely out of character for them, that they would not keep the house that way. And again, this to me is all about the subtleties. I mean, it's not just thinking about, I need to make it look like they took some jewelry. It's, I need to make it look like they looked at the jewelry, realized the jewelry wasn't worth any money, dropped some of the jewelry, ripped a poster off the wall. And then again, the, the biggest glaring thing in this first half that we did, uh, that we've covered, it being the, the house other than the master suite, is the Xbox. The fact that Carpenter didn't even mention that in report number one is sickening to me. It's the most obvious, glaring piece, even if it was staged. Still, you at least mention it. I'm sure most of you have looked at the crime scene photos. There's an HDMI cord hanging out there. Clearly used to have something on the end of it. There's a space there for it. And doesn't even mention it. It's it's disgusting. Ron says, does the sorting of the costume jewelry suggest a woman was involved? I don't think so. I mean, it's it might suggest it, but I mean, I, I can't I can't say that only a woman would know the difference, especially if these are career criminals or people that rob houses often, you know, and they've learned what has and it could be whether it's costume jewelry or whatever, even, you know, even real jewelry. If these are people that regularly rob people and then they go pawn or whatever to get rid of the. They know what sells and what doesn't. They know what they can get money for. You know, that's why there's, you know, if these are burglars, we're going to leave the the VCR and we're going to leave the TV because those are hard to sell and it's big, it's hard to carry. But the Xbox, I know I can get a couple hundred bucks for that Xbox quick. They'll leave the DVDs, but grab the Xbox games because Xbox games you can sell quick. Yeah, and there is something to be said about the variety of items that were tampered with. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got somebody who, you know, if they steal an Xbox, they know this this electronic is worth this much money. And then they go through jewelry and they know what jewelry is worth money. And right. Like you said, it kind of it kind of leads to somebody who knows how to look for something of value. Yeah. Yeah. I think that and I know other people have disagreed with this and we got a long way to go still. But right now, as I'm starting to really dissect these crime scene photos in the crime scene report, uh, originally, I thought maybe just someone young, you know, it's Xbox and that. But really, I'm thinking there's a lot more criminal sophistication here. Uh, whether it's Sandy or someone else, because because if this was staged, it's the most brilliant staging job of a crime scene I've ever seen ever. I mean, it's it's insanely sophisticated. But even the robbery, you know, at a glance, you'll say, well, this there's no criminal sophistication here. They they messed up. But really, when you look at it, everything was going fine. If this wasn't staged, it looked to me like everything was going fine until Jim started fighting back. And if you have multiple offenders. That one of them, in an attempt that was maybe holding him with a knife with no intention of killing him, had to use the knife to defend themselves, and everything broke bad from there. Other than that, it's it looks very criminally sophisticated. Diane says, regarding the identification of the red binding used on Sandy's arms, is it possible that it's a curtain tie back? Sandy's thrifty and inventive repurposing of pillow shams as bath mats indicates she probably used items in unconventional ways and it would be interesting to know if the fabric matched any drapes in the house. I noticed it seems to match the burgundy color in the shams and may have been something she used in a unique way in her closet, bedroom, or bathroom. To be clear, for starters, it wasn't red uh, what was on her. It was a red cord that was on Jim that we'll talk about uh, later. And it wasn't burgundy either. It was purple. And no, they weren't able to match it to anything else in the house. Now, um, which you'll you'll see in the crime scene photos for Sunday's episode in 607 is we took, you know they put up all the pictures inside the closet. There are some items in the closet that look like they could be that color. Uh, like there's like a hoodie or some kind of shirt. 
but nothing that really looks like a belt goes to it. But the way it was described to me is more like a like a fashionable just belt, and not so much a, a belt from a robe, but more just a belt. I don't know how women's clothing works, but not a scarf. Not a scarf. The scarf, the one on the ankles, was definitely a scarf, but not the one on the arms. All right, Paula says, did the detectives or district attorney make any comment about it being Christmas time and that nicer neighborhoods are the prime target for thieves that time of year? Of course not, because they refuse to acknowledge anything that indicates this is a robbery or burglary. But that also is something to think about. Yeah, I mean, there are lots and lots of burglaries around this time of year. I mean, it was the 23rd. It was two days before Christmas. You know, there's people have just boxes of stuff sitting out that are Christmas gifts. So, yeah, it's definitely a time when you, you see a lot of burglaries and robberies. Uh, and then also what stands out from the Melgar's house from everybody else's, well, it very well could have been the only house on the street that didn't have a Christmas tree lighting it up, lighting up the whole house because Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate Christmas. So that could have been a trigger. It could have been, it could have been the thing that set their house apart. All right, that's it for this week's follow-up. It was a long one, but I know we had to cover a lot of stuff, and it was a really great discussion. Yep, thanks, everybody. And I'm going to eat some lunch and go get on an airplane and uh, looking forward to talking to you guys all next week after I get back from my trip to go watch Ed walk out of prison. Hopefully, I've seen a lot of you there. And make sure you check out Sunday's episode where we're going to cover the master bedroom and master bathroom. And I think that you'll be stunned when you see what was missed in those two rooms. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.